Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Well, as you probably know that, first of all, don't panic. Second of all, I think the understanding now about that famous clip, that uh, Orson Welles uh, version of War of the World, is that the, the, there's a little bit of historical mythologizing uh, of, about the panic that ensued in the U.S., that it wasn't anywhere near as extreme as people have made it out to be in the past. But it is, it is at least the sound of collapse or calamity. Uh, it is the sound of at least a, a version of a huge seismic change uh, in the life of humankind, even if it's a completely fake one. Uh, and we're going to talk about real ones today. One of the things we've been kind of batting around in some of our meetings uh, for this show is if we were in a state of societal collapse, if we were going through societal collapse, would we know that? Do people know it when it's happening? And if we are going through it, where is it leading us? So this is going to be a, just a terrifically cheerful and uplifting show. No, I, I think we can make it okay for you. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk very uh, about something that has been fascinating me for a long time, and that is the fall of Rome. Uh, and, and towards the end, we're also going to talk about the collapse of the classic Mayan civilization, except that sometimes, as you will hear our guests say, I think, what we call collapse is actually our projection onto a set of evidence. It's it's actually less clear that the classic Mayan civilization collapsed somewhere around the ninth century. Uh, it may have just sort of transitioned, moved on, transformed, migrated, uh, and it looks like collapse to us. Anyway, uh, but we're going to begin with Martin Rees. Uh, he is uh, astronomer royal and a member of the House of Lords. He's also the co-founder of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. His latest book is On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. Martin Rees, welcome to our show. Great to be on the show. So I was watching a speech that you were giving, I think, in 2019, and you described in the speech a whole cluster of things that then actually happened in 2020, a pandemic that was easily transported around the world, fully internationalized through air travel, the breakdown of supply chains, uh, occasional natural disasters like hurricanes piling on top of the pandemic. And I'm guessing that as you watch 2020 unfold, it some of what you saw confirmed your worst suspicions in a grimly unsurprising way. But I'm also thinking that some of what you saw was resilience and innovation in the face uh, of cataclysm. And I'm wondering if you could specifically comment on those two sets uh, of reactions you may have had to what you've seen here in 2020. 
Well, I think we've seen, first of all, how interconnected the world is. Uh, the pandemic has spread uh, over much of the world um, at the speed of jet aircraft, really. And so we have to realize how fragile our interconnected world is. Um, we also have to realize, as you say, that it causes secondary effects on the economy, etc., and could perhaps affect food distribution and other things. So we do have to worry about uh, these um, fallouts from a pandemic. And uh, these are the kind of things we should have predicted more than we actually did. But we are, I hope, going to be better prepared for the next one. Right. I mean, I look at, for example, and I tend to be, I think, maybe a little bit more pessimistic than than you are even. But I look really? at something something like the development of, of the mRNA vaccines, which it, it looks as though, based on what I can understand about these um, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, as though the Moderna one was drafted almost instantly. It was drawn up shortly after the sequencing of the virus's genome. Uh, and obviously, they're both ready for implementation now. And of course, I mean, in, in England, it's already happening. Um, that's a remarkable thing. And it seems possible, based on what little I understand about this, that in future situations that resemble this one, uh, it, it really will be a, a, a possible to, to craft a, a workable vaccine in an even shorter window than we did at this time. So you look at something like that and you think, well, our technology got us into trouble, but it got us out of trouble. But, but react to that. Well, I think uh, it's clear we need more technology not less. We shouldn't be Luddites. We need better directed technology. But as regards the um, vaccines, etc., um, we in the UK were well prepared for an influenza pandemic mm. where you can get the vaccines easily. You don't need protective clothing, etc. We weren't so well prepared for this. And it's good news that we have managed within a year uh, to get some uh, vaccines that are usable. But uh, that's a bit of luck. Remember that we don't yet have a proper AIDS vaccine even though it's been with us for nearly 40 years. So we don't always have the uh, possibility of an easy cure for some disease to stop the pandemic. So to me, the million dollar question for this show is, if we were living through some societal collapse, yes. would we know it? I mean, T.S. Eliot tells us, you know, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Um, I mean, w would we necessarily know that the road that we're on right now has, over the next hill or two, something resembling a full-on collapse of civilization? Or is that the kind of thing that one only understands in some Edward Gibbon kind of retrospect? Um, well, I think uh, uh, if, if we really had a more severe disaster than the um, uh, coronavirus has given us, we would certainly know, because remember, we could, in principle, have had something with the uh, uh, transmissibility of mm -hmm. COVID-19, but the lethality of uh, Ebola. If that had happened, then we'd certainly know already mm -hmm. that society would be collapsing because hospitals would be completely overwhelmed, supply chains and work would completely stop. Similarly, if we had a quite different kind of disaster, a uh, attack which knocks down the electricity grid in a major part of the US, you'd certainly know straight away that you're in a collapsed situation. So I think uh, this um, pandemic has not been the worst thing we can imagine, nor indeed the worst thing that we could perhaps expect this century. 
Well, since you mentioned electricity grid, uh, this is something that, of course, uh, like so many of these disasters, the creators of fiction think about this uh, kind of thing uh, all the time. We sort of get a kind of mental practice watching it unfold in, in books or, or on screens. Uh, I, I don't know whether you saw this particular series. I'm going to play a promo for you right now. Prime Minister, we've got a really serious situation. The high-speed plasma eruption is heading straight for us. The storm will certainly cause huge damage. Some areas could be without power for months. All the navigational systems are out. This is now a national emergency. We're the ones who have to make the decisions. People are dying because of your government. This country's on the brink. I made a promise to the people, and I'm going to keep that promise. So we see it. That's called Cobra. It's um, we see a kind of a set of cascading events that starts with a, a solar storm that really does yes. begin to take down the the electrical grid. Um, I, this is a scenario, obviously, that you uh, have envisioned in a non-fictional way. And one of the things that we see there is a kind of fragility to all the other resources. Right, one thing breaks, and then everything breaks along with it. Well, that's right. And we can now protect against these events to some extent, uh, these natural events, um, massive solar flares. But I think I worry far more about the events which are caused intentionally by bad actors, as it were, um, uh, cyber attacks on the grid, for instance. And I quote in my book something from a 2012 Department of Defense report, which says that a state-level attack on the U.S., East Coast electric grid will be so serious it would merit a nuclear response. That's what your generals think. Mm -hmm. And now, with the aid of AI, I don't think it'll need a state actor. There's an arms race between the um, uh, uh, cyber attackers and those defending against them. It's not clear which side will win. So I think that we have to worry particularly, I make a big emphasis on this in my book, on bad actors who are empowered by technology. Now, we've so had we, nuclear weapons for 75 years, but mm. they can't be built without a conspicuous special facility. Whereas cyber attacks and creating bioweapons can be done using fairly routine equipment, which is widely available. And my big worry is that we can't be sure that one or two people somewhere in the world won't do this sort of thing and get away with it. Right. So when you're talking about bad actors here, you are talking about somebody in his bedroom or basement. You know, you're not talking about Vladimir Putin, although I hope we can circle back to him for just a second in a few minutes. But so one of the things that you're describing is kind of the byproduct of a tremendous amount of freedom conferred on the individual person by the digital revolution, that once we all became hooked into the Internet and, and had access to all kinds of platforms and interesting software, we could do we could become almost super human in a way we could do things that the average person could not have done in 1980 and, and and i'm wondering what you think we might have to give up from all that in order to be safe from a bad actor attack that could have the, the this yes. kind of cataclysmic equivalent that you're talking about yes well good point i mean let me say two different things uh, one is that i think social media um, are making things harder because in the old days, most people got their information uh, processed via professional journalists in newspapers or um, national radio, etc. Uh, whereas now, anyone can uh, get access to an audience. The more extreme, the better. And if you click on something extreme, you get sent 
to something far more extreme. So the extremes are not muffled as they were in the past, but they're accentuated. And this again is an unstabilizing factor. But the other point is that, as you say, uh, we're going to have a tension between three things we ought to value. One is privacy, uh, the other is freedom, and the other is security. And I think uh, different nations will balance those differently. The Chinese, I guess, will be happy to abandon uh, uh, privacy, and that will give them greater security. And uh, uh, Americans will have to decide if they want to do the same or accept greater risks. Because only if we can be sure that a few bad actors aren't creating something which could cascade globally into a massive disaster, can we feel secure. Right. So that, that does require some sacrifice of freedom uh, and privacy if we want to be safer from that. But I'd also, yes. yeah, I'd also like to talk about state actors, too, because I think that's not insignificant. And you were in the first part of your answer talking about, you know, what's what circulates on social media and, and extremities of opinion uh, yes. kind of rise to the top uh, and often lead you to other extremities of opinion. So in other words, if you disbelieve in vaccines, YouTube will also send you to a, a flat earth um, video or, or something like that. You'll, you know, yeah. you can go all kinds of places like that. Um, but it's also the case, you know, I think there's no question that, you know, that Vladimir Putin and Russia have also harnessed this, harnessed the capacity for much more organized disinformation. Uh, it's even crept into um, issues of public health. It does appear that some uh, of the pseudoscience about COVID-19, and even prior to COVID-19, some of the pseudoscience science about vaccine is generated by bots and Russian troll farms, that they are not simply trying to destabilize democracy. They're trying to tell us stuff that could get us killed simply because, because we don't understand the kind of danger we're in from a virus. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, too. Well, let me first say, you say this comes from Russia, but it seems to me, looking from Europe, that just as much of this has come in the Trump era within the U.S. itself. So <laughs> guilty, I'm guilty as charged. About the U.S. is about Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, in other words, I, I think a lot of it comes in a much less organized way uh, from the U.S. and, of course, from Trump himself. But, I mean, yeah. I, I think Putin has a very different agenda, right? He he really would like to de- destabilize Western democracies, uh, and and he has a very a much more organized, less, hap- ha- less haphazard way of doing that, unless you, you, maybe you don't agree about that. Well, I, I don't think I do agree. I'm open-minded about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think one thing that we, maybe we do both agree on is the notion that, you know, as damaging uh, as physical cataclysms can be, bad information creates a tremendous amount of risk for us. If we if we Indeed. believe things that are untrue, we can get in a tremendous amount of trouble. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's linked to the issue of education. I think uh, um, if people had a basic education and could understand probabilities and understood what was credible and what wasn't, then it would be harder for these uh, crazy ideas to gain traction. So I think one of the problems um, is uh, lack of scientific education. And um, uh, here again, I'm afraid America doesn't do very well because the uh, schools that do far best in science are those in East Asia. And I think we can learn from them uh, to uh, have a better scientific education. And if that's the case, then there'll be less gullibility, as it were, and it'll be harder for um, these extremists to get traction. 
So one of the other things that you uh, speak about and write about uh, is our relationship with artificial intelligence. And and this, uh, I think, is something that does happen by degrees. You know, in the movies, we see Skynet achieve some kind of consciousness, and suddenly you've got this whole Terminator scenario unfolding. We talk a lot about singularities. But it, it seems to me that we hand a little bit more of our lives over to AI every single day, uh, that every single day we are inviting uh, more and more involvement in in what we do and what we think and what we desire uh, to, to be coupled up with artificial intelligence. Maybe you could say a little bit about what you think the risks are of that. Yes. Well, I think in the short term, there are risks because, uh, as you know, large data sets can be handled very well uh, by uh, AI and it uh, learns uh, from a real data set um, and then uh, applies that to making its own decisions. So it follows the biases already present. And this is something which already is, of course, a concern in uh, selecting a shortlist for job application and things like that. And I think it's very important that if we are going to be sent to prison or recommended for surgery or denied credit, we should be able to contest the decision and uh, be given some reasons. It's not enough to be told it's done by a machine, which on the whole is more reliable than a human being. So I think we have already uh, a worry about handing over too many decisions which affect us to machines which can't explain themselves and which may be subject to uh, bugs which involve biases, etc. That's one thing. And of course, in the long run, uh, this is going to become uh, more serious. But I have to say that for a long time, I, I think we're going to have to worry more about uh, um, uh, um, real stupidity than artificial intelligence. Uh, the machines um, won't be able to do all the things humans do. And uh, what we have to worry about is breakdowns in AI if we hand over too much to it. But of course, they do have a role. They can manage a complex system like a um, electricity grid or traffic flow in a city. And indeed, uh, the Chinese, if they wished, would now be able to have a planned economy of a kind that Marx and Stalin could only have dreamed of because they have uh, all the data on every purchase, every inventory and all that. So machines can be used because of their speed, but that doesn't mean we want them to take over decisions which are now taken by fallible people. So uh, we're, we're heading towards the end of our conversation, although it could go on much longer. But you say worry about real stupidity instead of about artificial intelligence, at least for a, a while here. I assume real stupidity includes simply looking at just obvious things like overpopulation, food insecurity, climate change, uh, and, and pretending that they are not urgent problems requiring uh, urgent action. Uh, there's a kind of blindness we seem to have to what uh, seems like a very, very hazardous situation. I mean, what? why don't we do something? Well, I think uh, um, the, the, the problem really is that uh, most politicians focus on the, uh, uh, the local and the short term and getting reelected. And it's hard to get them to care about what will happen in the lives of their children and grandchildren. And in particular, what will happen in, uh, in Central Africa, for instance, where these effects may be worse. So I think we do have to broaden people's perspectives um, otherwise, there will be uh, a very unstable world if we allow growing inequalities, not only within countries, but between countries, and in particular, if uh, whole regions in Africa get left behind. So I think we do have to realize that uh, uh, we're like the um, proverbial 
frog in the uh, uh, in, in the water pan that doesn't realize it's going to boil and it is too late to escape. You really have to change. And the one hopeful sign, of course, is that the younger generation, which will be hopefully alive at the end of a century, are having long-term uh, thoughts. And uh, these demonstrations are therefore uh, things which we should welcome. And I think politicians will start to think long-term if they feel they won't lose votes thereby, if they think the public cares. And so what I think we've got to do is to ensure that scientists, not directly, but through charismatic individuals, uh, make the public aware of these long-term global challenges. Because if the public is aware, then uh, they will put pressure on politicians to do the right thing in that context. The trouble is that most of these issues are not high enough on the public agenda for politicians to feel they've got to follow them. Although, why, I mean, it, it is baffling. Well, you, I think you've answered the question of why they aren't a bigger part of our consciousness. We're going to have to end there with Martin Rees, uh, the astronomer royal and a member of the House of Lords, co-founder of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. His latest book is On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. And we are going to take a break. When we're going to come back, we'll, we'll talk about what happens when a decline is not successfully checked. And that would be the case with the Roman Empire. Fell from the sky. It rained mackerel. It rained trout. And a great day of wrath has come. And here's mud in the big red eye. And the poker's in the fire. And the locusts take the sky. And the earth All right. So um, I should say that I've become a big fan of uh, one of the podcasts done by our next guest, Patrick Wyman. Uh, he's the former host of The Fall of Rome, which I've been listening to uh, every night, uh, now the host of The Tides of History. Uh, his book, The Verge, will be published in 2021. His Substack newsletter is Perspectives Past, Present and Future. Uh, and he joins us now. Welcome, Patrick Wyman. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So um, I'm amazed to be talking to you just because I've gotten so used to your voice uh, in, in my house. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, um, and we're not talking about the Edward Gibbon book, I think we have a little bit of a tendency, also conditioned by Hollywood, to think of things like Lord of the Rings, where there's some epic battle where, you know, either you defeat the forces of Sauron or you don't, uh, you know, and and the fall of Rome is something that, took what 300 350 years there isn't like sort of a a place where you can stick a pin in the timeline and say there right there that's the fall of rome yeah, exactly. There's a there's a strong tendency to want to view things in narrative terms. We're creatures of narrative. We understand the world as narrative. Stories are central to, to, to the way that we make sense of things around us. And so we want to see rising action, a climax, you know, falling action as some sort of conclusion. We wanna we wanna be able to 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 stick a pin in things and say, okay, this is done, this is over, let's move on to the next thing. That's not really how empires, political systems, economic systems work. Um, they they stick around for a long time. Time. Some aspects of them, uh, some aspects of them, survive for for 
you know, centuries, millennia. There are aspects of the Roman world that are still with us today. There are other pieces, like in a very restricted territorial and political sense, that ended at a, that that may have ended in a at a much more specific time. We learn the year 476 in textbooks, and it's it's a handy one. Um, but even there, you could also choose 480 um, if you if you like the Emperor Julius Nepos instead of Romulus Augustulus. Um, Romulus Augustulus, I have to say, is a little fitting because of because of the name because yeah. you get. Uh, the founder of Rome and the uh, and the diminutive of the first emperor of Rome, so that t- that puts a nice bow on things. But even then, you could choose a different day, right? So, um, one of the things that I think one can extract from this story is that societies and regimes can deal with incipient crises, whether it's a military invasion, a plague, uh, um, some kind of economic disruption, if they are generally speaking healthy. And, and, and it seems as though that's a little bit of the story of Rome, that it, the, that the government, the leadership, the society itself, uh, lost some of its robustness. And then when it was facing new challenges, just wasn't as ready as it might have been 200 or 300 years prior to that. But maybe you could say a little bit more about, in, in specifics, how you see that lack of robustness for Rome. Yeah, so I, I think there, you hit on a really important point there, which is that all all political and all political systems face challenges. They they're always going to be bad things that happen, whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic or an invasion from outside or some sort of internal strife. Uh, those are that's that's just how things work. Um, what what separates really resilient states, really resilient systems from those that are not, is the ability to react to and rebound from those things. So, if you have a hurricane, are you going to rebuild the things that were that were destroyed in the hurricane? If you have a pandemic, are you able to impose the kinds of public health measures that are necessary to to at least dampen its spread, if not prevent it entirely? If you have a famine, are you able to transport food from one part of from one part where it's abundant to another part where it's not? Um, if you have an invasion. Uh, and say your army is destroyed in a in a terrible battle, um, can you rebuild that army to prevent the next invasion? It's things like that. And what we see over the course of the the in, especially over the fifth century in the Roman Empire is a, a decreasing ability to do those things. So if a field army is destroyed in battle, it's much harder to replace. If a governor goes rogue and decides that he wants to rule his own province for a while, um, there's an inability to reintegrate that territory. If uh, if a group of invaders comes in and sets up shop and again takes over a province, you can't either integrate those people into your political system um, as, as with these as with the barbarian groups. Like the Visigoths and the Vandals, you can't integrate them into your system. You can't induce the the leaders of those groups to to become part of uh, of your system. Um, there's a decreasing ability to do that over the over the later years of the Roman Empire, and that more than anything else is is what is why we say that the Roman Empire just ended because it's not like bad things didn't happen during the Pax Romana during the heyday of the Roman Empire. There were there were invasions and wars and civil wars and there were pandemics and there were climatic shifts. There were lots of bad things that happened. It's just that the system was resilient enough and stable enough for a variety of different reasons, some of which were not actually under the control of political authorities. I mean like the climate was just better. The weather was better. You could grow more food in in more places. The the population was higher. Um, there were things that were out of their control, but in in some, it lent itself to a much more stable system. I also get the feeling that uh, as Rome rounded into this this kind of end stage three century or so span, 
one of the other things that might have caught up with it is kind of um, a, a, a reluctance to do certain things for yourself, uh, and and so you begin training other people to do them. And I th- I'm thinking in particular in a military sense that some of the people who wound up attacking Rome, if I understand this correctly, were people who had been recruited and trained by Rome to be uh, and, and and taught uh, the, the Roman Empire's military techniques uh, for the purpose of being soldiers of the empire. Uh, the problem is you can't always keep them on your side. Yeah, there is one of the things that happens in the fifth century, and there are a whole bunch of ways, uh, there are a whole bunch of different ways to understand this. I'm just giving one particular interpretation that I find most convincing. Um, So over the over the last few centuries of the Roman Empire, the connections between what was happening on one side of the frontier and what was happening on the other side of the frontier grew grew much more intense. Um, And the the primary medium for that contact between what we would call barbarian peoples and the Roman world was through the military. And so increasing numbers of people born on what's technically the, the wrong side of the border that are born in the barbarian world are joining the Roman army. Now, the vast majority of those people join the Roman army. They serve their, they either die in service as most people who join the Roman army did, or they, or, or they fully assimilated to the norms of the Roman army. And they, Got their land inside the inside the borders when they when they finished up, they settled and they were no different than any other Roman. It's just that they happened to have been born um, on the other side of the frontier. But as time went on, and the gap between the military and civil society grew, um, as the military became more of a quote unquote barbarian institution, you know, you're wandering around a Roman army camp, you start to hear more Germanic words than Latin words. Um, the, the the hairstyles start to look a little more barbarian. They're all wearing trousers. They're not wearing they're not wearing good Roman garb. They're wearing barbarian clothing. Um, the the kinds of symbols that they're putting on their weapons and armor look like uh, look like barbarian symbols. Those are the kinds of names that they're giving their their military units. It's kind of it kind of gets to be hard to tell the difference between a barbarian army and a Roman army. Um, like when you get into the fifth century, especially uh, into the middle of the fifth century, when you get into places like northern Gaul, the, the kind of fringes of the Roman world, the difference between a quote unquote barbarian people that's on the move and looking to set up shop someplace and a Roman field army is almost null. There's almost no difference between the two things. We really can't tell by looking at a source. It's just kind of a matter of perspective. Is this guy a Roman general or is he a barbarian king? We can't we can't really tell at that point. The differences between those two things break down in really profound ways that have a lot of implications for the early medieval world that follows. All right. So um, I want to talk a little bit about leadership, because I think, as you've pointed out, you know, there are some pitfalls to the so-called great man theory of history. On the other hand, leadership matters. Uh, and uh, I will now see how good my memory memory is from my college <laughs> courses. But there was a period of five good emperors who were Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, and Marcus Aurelius. At the end of Marcus Aurelius, uh, we get actually this moment uh, enshrined in Oscar-winning cinema. Your fame is well-deserved, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a gladiator to match you. Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! Will you remove your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. 
Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. So this all transpires well before the fall of Rome, but you are sort of hearing the tale end of uh, those five good emperors who really had uh, the ability to administer this vast, sprawling, incredibly complicated uh, military and civil empire. Um, and and uh, the rise of Commodus, uh, maybe not made of the same stuff. And and it does seem, Patrick, as though we when we do get into those latter years, that leadership is really an issue. Uh, there are just really, really bad leaders. And that, that does wind up mattering, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's important to, uh, you You have to give structural forces their due, that there are things that are happening in, in, in the late fourth and fifth centuries that that make it much harder for the Roman Empire to stay unified, to, to kind of retain its, to retain its integrity as a territorial unit, as a political system, as a, as an economic unit too, something that we haven't really talked about, but that's very important and kind of underpins the rest of this. Um, and but but yes, individual actions, especially actions from when you have an imperial system that is built around the actions of the emperor, when you have a series of emperors in the fifth century who just don't do anything, who are incapable of taking action, um, it makes things very difficult because you have to imagine the Roman system is a kind of a series of concentric rings that all operate around the person of the emperor and the emperor isn't necessarily carrying these things out himself, but he's giving orders to people who do carry them out. And if the emperor is not actually issuing orders, if it's people around the emperor who are doing that, then you're always going to have problems of legitimacy. Why should I listen to this person who's telling me to do this thing if it's not the emperor? Why does the why does the palace Majordomo get to make this decision? Why does the why does this leading general get to make these decisions? Um, it in, it induces a real inflection point of into a political system if you don't have a leader who's capable of doing that. And what we have in the 5th century is a whole bunch of emperors who can't, who are just not capable of doing it. And then by the time you do get a run of a few actually capable people in the, in the 450s and the 460s who are trying to make decisions, who are trying to turn things back around, it's effectively too late by that point. Um, things have degraded too much. There's too much territory that's been lost. The tax base is dramatically diminished. Um, if you want to find soldiers, you're going to have to make deals with barbarian groups in order to get those soldiers. Um, so there's this period from the death of Theodosius in 395 up until about the middle of the 450s where if things could have been reversed by good leadership, that would have been the point when it when it would have happened. So there's also um, a moment, um, I think, uh, I remember from one of your podcasts, I think there's a year where there are six claimants uh, to the to the title uh, of emperor. And, you know, we're going through a somewhat rocky transition of power right now <laughs> here <laughs> in the United States. And, and I mean, that's a dangerous thing, too, right? When you don't have an orderly way of figuring out who the leader is. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the one of the parallels that I would draw with the present day is that if you ever have to stop and ask questions about legitimacy, you're in trouble. We're we've now been at a point where for the past several years we've been asking a variety of questions about legitimacy in our own political system. And if you've gotten to the point where you have to stop to ask those, then things are in trouble because Political systems only function because we believe that they have the right to function. If you have to stop all the time and wonder, does this person, this this elected official, this king, um, this uh, whoever it is, does this person have the right to tell me to do this? Does this person have the right to collect my taxes, um, to to send an army here or there? Then the whole system is already under substantial stress, whether we think about it in those terms or not. When you And if you have a system that's built on orderly and peaceful transfers of power, and there are questions about who gets to come next and whether 
they have the right to do that. It's not so much how those questions are resolved as the fact that it is possible to ask those questions within the framework of the system that leads to that that is worrisome, that's really problematic, that should that should have people scratching their heads and wondering. And yeah, over the course of the fifth century in the Roman world, you see that happen a lot. There's there are almost no. Um, unchallenged transfers of power. Anytime you have one child emperor replaced with another child emperor, there's always a general on the frontier who's like, you know what, I could probably do a better job. I've got two sons, they're adults. Um, they would make great emperors after me. Why shouldn't I be the emperor? Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different ways of having legitimacy within a political system. I mean, you know, in the context of the United States, we think that's because of the will of the people that elected officials are are elected by uh, by by the people to carry out the will of the people. Um, you can also have dynastic legitimacy that this family has a right to rule. You can have kind of a broader systemic legitimacy that this is this is the Roman system and this is how we do things. If you stop to ask questions about those things, then the political system is then then there are some serious flaws and cracks in the foundation. Okay, so we have to wrap up here pretty soon, but I do want because I know that you devoted a kind of a podcast extra to this. I mean, if you could go back with magical powers and whisper in some ears and stuff, were there some things that could have been done, uh, different change, different uh, decisions, better changes, uh, and if you do these things, you can get another three or four hundred years uh, uh, out of this uh, car you've been driving across Europe. Uh, could you? Can you save Rome with a few things that? would be done differently? So that's a really good question. And um, the, basically, you would have to go pretty far back. Uh, mm. I think I think you would have to go to the, the beginning of the 5th century, so right around the year 400 at the very latest. Um, the further on you go, the further you get from this point of stability, the more difficult it gets. So there's a, a really wonderful historian named Walter Scheidel who, who wrote a book called Escape from Rome um, that has some huge implications for basically why um, empires appear all over the world, um, like big territorial empires appear all over the world, but only once in Europe. On the only big territorial empire in Europe that managed to control the, the basically the entire continent was the Roman Empire. It never happened again. And the further that you get, as Scheidel's argument is that the further along you get, the harder the counterfactual gets, the harder it gets to imagine a point where things could have been put back together. So it couldn't have happened in the middle of the 6th century with Justinian, um, who he got about as close as you could think it was possible to do so. It didn't happen with Charlemagne. It didn't happen any of the subsequent times in the Middle Ages or the early modern period. So if, if he's right about that, and I think he is, then you really have to go back to the, the very inflection point where it starts to fall apart. So you really have to go back to the death of Theodosius, um, who leaves behind two sons, one to rule each half of the empire, one named Arcadius, one named Honorius. Um, neither of them was, was good for much. Honorius was only eight years old when his father died. Arcadius was 18, but he was not an especially strong-willed figure. Um, maybe if uh, instead of trying to rule through these feckless youths, um, the the generals had actively taken power for themselves and founded their own new dynasties um, and given themselves that kind of imprimatur of, of imperial legitimacy, then maybe those systems could have been saved if somebody had come in from the, if a general had come in from the provinces and um, kind of kicked out the Theodosian dynasty uh, and established himself as, as ruler, then things could have been different. The Theodosians did the best they could with what they had. Uh, the, the imperial women of the fifth century were incredibly impressive figures. Um, but within the system, as it was set up, there was it was very difficult to have any kind of proxy rulership that retained legitimacy to have any anybody but the emperor doing emperor things um 
and make that seem like it was a, a, a viable outcome for everybody. So All right, basically, gonna, you would have actually, needed We are going to have to stop it there. I'll get a lot of trouble Sorry with Betsy Copeland, and you've got a taste of how formidable she is. Uh, talking about the, uh, talking <laughs> I about the, Sorry about that. Talking about the women of the empire, um, I'm dealing with one of them on a daily basis. Uh, Patrick Wyman is the host of uh, The Tides of History, the former host of The Fall of Rome. I hope we just made some fans uh, of that uh, who want to go check it out on your podcasting platform. His book, The Verge, will be published in 2021. His Substack newsletter is Perspectives, Past, Present, and Future. Uh, we will be back after this uh, with a look at another uh, civilization that is often talked about as having collapsed, but that may not be the right word at all. So I have to thank uh, two uh, women uh, of the public radio empire. Uh, one of them is Kata Pastora Maxima. Uh, she is the person who is uh, running the uh, whole operation there in the studio. Uh, and then Betsivia Nursia uh, is the, the Betsy Kaplan is the producer of this episode. Uh, thanks to both of them, uh, I'd be lost uh, otherwise. Uh, so we are going to look at a different civilization right now. Um, we're going to do it uh, with uh, Patricia McEnany, uh, a Maya archaeologist, and the Kennan. Eminent professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is the co author with Norman Yaffe of Questioning Collapse, Human Resilience, Ecological Vulnerability, and the Aftermath of an Empire. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Colin. It's good to be here. So, you know, we often, we, we, when we hear about the kind of the so-called classic Maya uh, collapse, uh, usually archaeologists uh, and historians are talking uh, about the ab abandonment of, of Maya cities in the southern lowlands of Mesoamerica between the 8th and 9th centuries. Um, and it's often treated a, as a mystery with competing theories about the cause of this so-called collapse. Um, as I understand it, you'd actually like to start the conversation a little earlier than that and talk about whether this is identifiably a collapse or just some kind of change, migration, and transformation. Say more about that. Well, I think that as I began to do fieldwork throughout the Maya region, um, I realized the, the discordance between our, our explanations for what happened at the end of the classic period and the actual empirical evidence that we have for continued population and uh, some, how many aspects sustain themselves of that civilization for hundreds and if not thousands of years after. So we have, for instance, today, uh, millions of Mayan speaking people living in Southern Mexico and Northern Central America. And they're practicing um, some of the same rituals that, that were practiced during the end of the classic period. So I think that the word civilization itself might be tripping us up here because of its emphasis on monumental architecture mm -hmm. and a distinct um, elite stratum. So when we're talking about civilizations, we're talking about some very, very unequal kinds of social systems and uh, that are politically quite centralized. And so what we see in the Maya region is definitely a, a dramatic population drawdown in the what we call the southern Maya lowlands uh, contemporary area of Peipen in, in Guatemala. 
and a movement, but then a buildup of population in the northern part of Yucatan and also along the coast. And we also see a kind of a backing away of a heavy, heavy investment in monumental architecture and in the notion that your ruler might be a divine ruler. That phrase is not used in uh, the polities that are reconstituted in the post-classic period. So it is most definitely a significant uh, transformation. And I think there was a lot of trauma um, associated with it, but it certainly did not spell the, the end of Maya civilization. Is it in some ways part of a narrative that's imposed uh, on the evidence that you're talking about? And yeah, some of it's, you know, memorial markers and things like that that stop at a certain point. But then you start getting all these theories about collapse of trade routes and drought and uh, ecological collapses and farming problems and stuff like that. And, and it almost seems like it, it, it might be an overlay, uh, a colonialist overlay saying, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're not around anymore because they screwed up somehow. They weren't. Uh, they weren't healthy, they weren't ready, they weren't smart, they weren't flexible or agile uh, enough. Uh, a way of maybe just kind of waving this whole civilization, which as you say, still uh, existed in a, in a different place, in a different form, but so, sort of saying, well, that was kind of their fault, they're not around. I think it's really hard in the Americas uh, to separate the political cycling that occurred, which, you know, your previous guest, uh, Patrick, was talking about this in reference to Rome. Um, but in the Americas, it's really hard to separate that discussion from the fact that the Americas have been colonized by uh, Western European peoples and uh, who have imposed uh, their own governmental form and developed a, a, a really a, a, a almost a caste hierarchy, and so that the, the two things do uh, get conflated, and there is quite. I mean, heritage distancing, as I like to call it, distancing indigenous peoples from their deep histories is is most definitely a strategy of settler colonialism. And we see that happening, of course, throughout the Maya region. Um, and so for me, when I do a lot of work with descended communities, and when I uh, speak to a young Maya boy or girl, and they don't, they've not even heard of the Codex Madrid, which is one of the four extant Maya codices mm -hmm. still surviving, and three of them are in European libraries. Um, you know, I have to think that there's really something wrong here with the way that this history, the story of the uh, Maya peoples of the past is being told and, uh, and the fact that very little of it is being told to kids in school today throughout the region that is now um, still populated by Maya peoples. Well, I mean, there seem to be parallels between there and here, too. There's ways in which we, we deprive various uh, people who, who we want to subject to underclass status. Uh, we, we deprive them of information about their history so that they, they can't insist on, on more status. They can't maybe fully understand the situation they're in. And I, I'm assuming that you think some of that, in the case of the Maya, is, in, is intentional, uh, it, that it's, it's better that they don't know. Uh, their entire story from the point of view of the people who either want to oppress or in some cases try to wipe them out. Well, yes, if you acknowledge a link between uh, current peoples and these deep histories and in the Maya region, these uh, amazing 
palatial sites uh, that are major sources of, of tourism, you know, income that, and, and my people receive very little benefit from that. But if you acknowledge that there's a link between the contemporary population and that deep history and the kinds of places that were built by people in the past, a thousand years ago, then all sorts of rights and privileges ensue from that. And uh, that, you know, that really changes the equation. So. Uh, so it is hard uh, in the Americas to, to separate what happened from the way in which the history is told. And, and I'm afraid that archaeologists um, have contributed to this um, in a, a kind of uh, unwitting fashion, really. But as we began to decipher the biohieroglyphic text and we realized, for instance, that, that there were instances of uh, martial engagements between the royal courts, between Tikal and Kalakmul, for instance, uh, that then became, uh, uh, for some people, a, a kind of a reason to think that, well, warfare, they must have just, you know, had duked it out at the equivalent of the Central American equivalent of the OK Corral, and then that was the end of them, you know, when in reality, um, you know, what civilization does not uh, employ warfare uh, mm -hmm. to expand its influence and power and wealth. All right. We're going to have to stop there, uh, although a much longer conversation could and perhaps should ensue with Patricia McEnany, a Maya archaeologist and the Kennan uh, eminent professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for being with us today. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening. And yes, thank you also uh, to Betsy Nursia and Kata Maxima uh, for the fine work that they did to make all of this happen. And we will be back tomorrow, but I'm not allowed to say what we will be doing. Your own town Your own town Your